Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is my 2013 unedited conversation with the late civil rights legend, Congressman John Lewis. There is a shorter, produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Where's the music? Can we turn the music off? Okay. I think we want to just begin. Uh, I don't know if people will wander in. I know this is an unstructured time of the program. But uh, what an honor. And I'm uh, so delighted that you've made the time for this. We will be turning this into an hour of radio. I think around Easter time is what we're thinking. Thank you. And um, if anyone still has their cell phone on, please turn it off. And um, what I want to do here just for the next hour and be really respectful that we don't go any longer than that is um, recall a little bit of... Uh, the meaning of these years, this movement that we are retracing right now with this pilgrimage, and um, and also the substance of nonviolence, the the, pra- the disciplines and the practice of it, which was something so fascinating for me to learn much more about than I knew, and to realize how much I, th- I thought that I knew much less than I thought I knew, um, and also translate a little, talk a little bit about translating the moral stance of that time into the time we inhabit now. So um, I'd like to start by talking about faith, which is a bedrock of your life. Um, It's one of the bedrocks that you name prominently in your most recent book. And I'd like to just hear a little bit about how you would describe the foundation of faith, the the spiritual background of your childhood that, 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 uh, that formed you through everything that's come since. I grew up in rural Alabama, about 50 miles from Montgomery, outside of a little place called Troy. Uh, my father was a sharecropper, a tenant farmer. But back in 1944, when I was four years old, and I do remember when I was four, my father had saved $300, and with the $300, he bought 100 into acres of land. We grew up very, very poor, six brothers, three sisters, Wonderful mother, wonderful father, wonderful grandparents. But growing up as a child, I I saw segregation and racial discrimination, and I didn't like it. And I would ask my mother, my father, my grandparents, my great-grandparents why. They would say, that's the way it is. Don't get in the way. Don't get in trouble. But attending church and Sunday school, reading the Bible, the teaching of the great teacher, and being deeply influenced by what I saw all around me. It, it was this belief that somehow and some way, things were gonna get better. That you had to have this sense of hope, a sense of optimism, and have faith. And People would say to me, my mother would say over and over again, work hard. And sometime working in the field, I would say to my mother, this is hard work. And this work is about to kill me. Mm-hmm. And she would say, boy, hard work never killed anybody. So I worked very, very hard as a child. But one day in 1955, at the age of 15, I heard of Rosa Parks. Mm-hmm. I heard the words of Martin Luther King Jr. on the radio. And he was talking and preaching about nonviolence, about peace, about reconciliation, and about the, the capacity, the ability to change things. And, and he was a preacher. He was too. a preacher. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be a preacher mm-hmm. as a young child. And I had this sense that if I believe, if I had faith, 
in my own capacity and ability to get things done, I too could change things. Mm -hmm. So I, I just never gave up, I never gave in, I just tried to, to hold on. And so when I went away at the age of 17. Wait, I wanna, I wanna stay with, with 14 and 15, just for a minute, because that was very stunning, striking and moving to me to read. I've read both of your books uh, these last few days. I actually have a 14-year-old son who's here with me on this pilgrimage. And it, it was so uh, striking to read about you being 14 in 1954 and reading about Brown versus Board of Education. And also, as I read it, r being filled with hope and excitement at that news and also not seeing anything change immediately in the, in the world of Alabama. And, and really, those, those years of you were 14 and heading into 15, as you say, 1955, you heard Martin Luther King's voice for the first time, the, the bus boycott, and also things like another 14-year-old boy, Emmett Till, who was uh, killed in, in Mississippi. So talk a little bit about how that period in your life, which in any life is a tumultuous moment, you know, what... What started to happen to you then? D during that period, I raised a lot of questions. I asked a lot of questions of my mother, my father, other ministers around. I, they accused me of being uh, nosy. <laughs> and uh, I thought of myself as just wanting to know. Mm -hmm. I was inquisitive. Mm -hmm. uh, when I heard about the Supreme Court decision in 1954, I thought the next school year, that I would go to a better school. At least it would be a desegregated school. I wouldn't have to ride a broken down bus and I would be able to get new books. But it never happened for me. It mm -hmm. never happened. But I didn't give up. I didn't become bitter or hostile. Uh, I kept a faith. And right. I remember hearing about what happened to Emmett Till. And I thought, if something like this can happen, to a young man. This is a young, young man who was visiting relatives in Mississippi from Chicago, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it could happen to any of us. Mm -hmm. And I remember even before then, in, in 1951, when I was 11 years old, I traveled one summer with an uncle and aunt and some of my first cousins from rural Alabama to, to Buffalo. Uh, for a visit, for a trip. I had never been outside of the South. Hmm. And being there gave me hope. And I saw how people lived there. I said, the way they're living in Buffalo, maybe somehow in some way we can make the South, make our region. Uh, I, I, wanted, I wanted to believe, and I did believe, that things would get better. But later, I, I, I discovered, I guess, that you have to have this sense of faith that what you're moving toward, that it's already done. It's say, already, it's say already some more happened. About that. Say some more about that. It, it's, it, it's the power to believe that you can see, that you can visualize that sense of community, that sense of family that sense of one house. And live as if? And, and you live that you're already there, mm -hmm. that you're already in there, in that community, part of that sense of one family, mm -hmm. one house. If you vis visualize it, mm -hmm. if you can even have faith that it's there, for you it is already there. And during the early days of the movement, I believe that the only true and real integration of that sense of the beloved community existed within the movement itself. Mm -hmm. Because in the final analysis, we did become a circle of trust, a band of brothers and sisters. So it didn't matter whether we were black or white. It didn't matter whether you came from the north to the south, or whether you were northern or southerner. We were one. You had made that vision real. For the struggle. Yes. For those of us in, in the struggle. But 
We studied. We prepared ourselves. Well, this is something else I want to talk about. The study, the preparation, the discipline. Um, when I read, you know, I think the term nonviolent resistance in the 21st century is a term everyone has heard. But reading about how you practiced that, how you learned it, the, I mean, there were, there were small things like maintaining eye contact, you know, wearing coats and ties and dresses, no slouching, no talking, um, being friendly and courteous, but there was also really serious role-playing. Um, you made a, a comment, we are, we are meeting each other in the context of a pilgrimage, retracing many places in the civil rights movement with members of Congress and others, which you've helped begin, which is an incredible thing. And yesterday, in one of these meetings, you made a comment which was humorous and serious at once, I think, that it would be good for Congress to take, uh, to take up some of the kind of role-playing that you did in the 1950s, 1960s, in the civil rights movement. So would you tell us a little bit about that? What you all did to prepare, to prepare possibly uh, to be beaten, to be imprisoned, possibly to be killed? Well, long before any sit-in, any march, long before the Freedom Ride, or the march from Selma to Montgomery, any organized campaign that took place, we did study. I remember as a student in Nashville, Tennessee, a small group of students every Tuesday night at 6.30 p.m. would gather at a small Methodist church near Fish University in downtown Nashville. And we had a teacher by the name of Jim Lawson, mm -hmm. a young man who taught us the philosophy and the discipline of nonviolence. We studied. We studied what Gandhi attempted to do in South Africa, what he accomplished in India. We studied Thoreau and civil disobedience. We studied the great religions of the world. And before we even discussed the possibility of a sit-in, we had role-playing. We had what we call social drama. Okay. And we would act out. That would be black and white young people, students, an interracial group playing the roles of African American. I'd be an interracial group playing the roles of white. And we went through the motion of someone harassing you, calling you out of your name, pulling you out of your seat, pulling your chair from under you. Someone kicking you or pretending to spit on you. Sometimes we did pour cold water on someone, mm -hmm. never hot. But we went through the motion. This was drama because we wanted people to feel like they were in the actual situation, that this could happen. And we would tell people, whether young men or young women, that if you've been beaten, Try to protect the most sensitive part of your body. Mm. Roll up, cover your head, and look out for each other. So when the time came, we were ready. We were prepared. I also read somewhere that you, you were trained, if so, even if someone was attacking you, to look them in the eye, that, that there was something disarming for human beings. We, we, we did uh, go through the emotion, the drama, of saying that if someone kick you, uh, spit on you, pull you off the lunch kind of stool, continue to make eye contact. Mm -hmm. Continue to give the impression, yes, you may beat me, but I'm human. Be friendly, try to smile, and just stay nonviolent. Mm -hmm. And during the nonviolent campaign in a city like Nashville and so many other parts of the American South, you never had one incident of someone striking back or hitting back. Right. There were even people who would right. say, I cannot go on a sit-in. I cannot go on a freedom ride. I may not be disciplined enough. But we were trained. We were, 
When we left to go on the Freedom Ride, we were prepared to die for what we believed in. And the way I come to understand this as I, again, study you, is the point of all of this role-playing was not just about being practically prepared. And, you know, I suspect that some neuroscientist now in the 21st century probably understands what happens in our brains somehow with what you knew about that moment of eye contact and, and human connection. But you also understood this to be a spiritual confrontation, first within yourselves and then with the world outside. Is that right? You're so right. First of all, you, you have to grow. It, it's just not something that is uh, natural. Mm. Uh, no. You, you right. have to be taught the way of peace, the way of love, the way of nonviolence. And in, in the religious sense, in the moral sense, you can say in the bosom of every human being, there is a spark of the divine. So you don't have a right as a human to abuse that spark of the divine in your fellow human being. That we, from time to time, would discuss, if you see someone that attacking you, beating you, spitting on you, you have to think of that person. You know, years ago, that person was an innocent child, innocent little baby. Mm. And so what happened? Did something go wrong? Did the environment? Or did someone teach that person to hate, to abuse others? So you try to appeal to the goodness right. of, of every human being. Mm -hmm. And you don't give up. You never give up on anyone. So here's a line from your book, Across That Bridge. The civil rights movement, above all, was a work of love. Yet even 50 years later, it is rare to find anyone who would use the word love to describe what we did. What you just said to me illuminates that. I think part of, part of the explanation of that is the way you are using the word love it's very rich and multi-layered and also challenging, challenging for the person who loves. Well, I, I think in our culture, I, I think sometimes people are afraid to say, I love you. We're afraid to say, especially in public life, many elected officials or would-be elected officials, they're afraid to talk about love. Maybe people tend to think, Something is so emotional about it. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe yeah. it's a sign of weakness. And, and we're not supposed to cry. I mean, we're supposed to be strong. But love is strong. Love is powerful. Love, the movement created what I like to call a nonviolent revolution. It was love at its best. Mm. It's one of the highest form of love. That you beat me, you arrest me, you take me to jail, you almost kill me, but in spite of that, I'm gonna still love you. I know Dr. King used to joke sometimes and say things like, just love the hell out of everybody, just love them. <laughs> love the hell out of them, right, <laughs> yeah. Um, Gandhi was such an important figure for you for all of you, for Dr. King as well. And I also think that may be a little bit lost in our collective memory. I think it's important to remember that, the, the very rich spiritual lineage that you were all drawing on and became part of. I was really struck by you. You often refer to Gandhi's, the one of Gandhi's important terms, satyagraha. And just, you know, again, in terms of breaking open this word love out of the kind of superficial ways we, we, we talk about it or nonviolence in a superficial way, uh, the, the definition of that that you, that you give is steadfastness in truth, active pacifism, right? Revolutionary love is another way to think about that. Not just an external stance, but a fundamental shift inside our own souls. It's very powerful. It's not... 
it's not the way, certainly not the way I hear people talking about public life or political action. Well, now. I think all of us in, in life, not just in, in the Western world, but all over the world, we need to come to that point. We need to evolve to that plane, to that level, where we're not ashamed to say to someone, I love you. Will you, uh, I'm sorry, uh, pardon me. Will you please forgive me? Excuse me? What is it? Have we lost something? Can we be just human and say, I love you? It, it, I think so, so many occasions, we, we think of love as being romantic and all of that. Right. But just love because it's good in itself. Just love living creatures. Now, when I was very young, you probably know that I, I fell in love with raising chickens. Right. And, and I love those chickens. I talked to those chickens. I preached to those chickens. And I, I used to cry when my mother or father wanted uh, to uh, kill one of those chickens uh, for dinner. Uh, they, was, they became part of my life mm -hmm. in my first nonviolent protest. We are protesting against my parents for getting rid of some of those chickens. Okay. <laughs> um. Let's talk a little bit about suffering, which is something that went right alongside that love um, in the movement, even with your chickens, and I, I think in the way you live now. Um, you talk about, um, you use the term redemptive suffering, and that your mother, who was a clearly a woman of incredible dignity and grace and courage, um, really internalized the idea of unearned suffering as a holy thing, that she would redeem that suffering. And you, you also wrote, suffering, and this, this again was an outgrowth of all your training and, and study, suffering can, can be nothing more than a sad and sorry thing without the presence on the part of the sufferer of a graceful heart an accepting and open heart, a heart that holds no malice toward the inflictors of his or her suffering. I mean, I, I guess that brings us back to this idea of love. But, you know, I want to ask you, before the, the triumphant Montgomery Selma march that we've all seen, the, the beautiful pictures of King and Heschel and all those other people walking across the bridge, there was Bloody Sunday, and you were in the front rows of that, and you were the first person to be hit. That was an incredibly brutal, uh, brutal act. Were you able, on that bridge, as you were knocked, as you were given a concussion, as other people were very badly injured, to really internalize that um, accepting an open heart? I mean, how, do you know that that's possible? I was prepared to accept the violence, the beating, and I thought we were going to be arrested and simply taken to jail. I didn't have any idea that we would be beaten. And that you would be met by these masses of State troopers, horses. And horses, and the posse of the sheriff that we would be trampled by horses and tear gas and beaten all the way back to the church. Right. I thought I was going to die. Mm -hmm. I thought I saw death. I thought it was my last nonviolent protest. But before I guess I lost uh, consciousness, I became deeply concerned about the other people on the march. But in all of the years since, I have not had any sense of bitterness or ill feeling toward any of the people. Um, I, I just don't have it. It's not, I guess it's not part of my DNA to, to become bitter, to become hostile. 
But uh, but you've also you've trained your DNA a bit more than well, the rest of us. Well, maybe I tried to guide it or control it, but it's just not the teaching, the training, the reading, and, and coming in contact with great teachers. Martin Luther King Jr. had a tremendous influence on me. And the reading and the study of Gandhi. Mm-hmm. It, um, when, I saw, when I saw the film several years ago of Gandhi, and saw the march to the sea, it reminded me of the march from Selma to Montgomery. That there come a time when you have to be prepared to literally put your physical body in the way to go against something that is evil, unjust, and you prepare to suffer the consequences. Mm-hmm. But whatever you do, whatever your response is, this is with love, kindness, and a sense of faith. In my religious tradition is this belief that it is, it's going to work out. It is going to work out. It's all going to be all right. And people will ask me from time to time, what should we do, John, during the sit-ins or during the Freedom Rides? And I would say, we need to find a way to dramatize the issue. We need to find a way to get in the way. But it should be in a peaceful, loving, nonviolent fashion. Hate is too heavy a burden to bear. Mm-hmm. And do you feel like even in that moment, in that that very dark, <clears throat> on that dark day on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, were you able to love those those officers who came at you in this in this sense you're describing? I, I saw these officers as individuals carrying out an order. And since then, I've had an opportunity to meet some of the sons and daughters of some of the people. I had a discussion on one occasion with uh, Governor Wallace hmm. and about what happened on this Sunday. And Governor Wallace would have ordered them, or would he, he would have been behind that. Well, he, he was the governor. He, yeah. he, wanted, he wanted the march stopped. He said he never gave them the order to beat us. Okay. And I, I said, Governor, why? He said to me, John, there were people waiting on the other side of the bridge to kill you. And I said, Governor, when we were stopped, it appeared to me there was an attempt to kill us before other people kill us. Um, right. He said it was a struggle between the federal government and the state government and not against us. On but this, I, I never had any bitterness toward him um, or any of the officials. Even during the, going back to the Freedom Rides when we arrived in Montgomery in 1961, there was a man named Floyd Mann, who was a public safety director mm-hmm. of the Alabama State Troopers. He came and stood and put a gun in the air and said something like, there will be no killing here today. There will be no killing here today. And several years later, I saw a Floyd man after I got elected to Congress at the dedication of the Civil Rights Memorial. And he asked me, he said, Congressman Lewis, do you remember me? And I said, Mr. Man, how can I forget you? You saved my life. Mm. He cried, and I cried. And I was present and very privileged just today here in Montgomery to witness the head of public safety here in Montgomery, the chief of police, uh, offer you a public apology. And a new generation of Montgomery policemen talk about his work to bring the truth of that history to policemen coming up now. It was a an incredible moment. 
It was it was a mo very moving moment to me. You know, I cry I cry sometimes, and sometimes I think I cry too much. But there are tears of gratitude, um, tears of appreciation, joy, happiness, a sense something about the distance we've come mm -hmm. and the progress we've made. What the chief did today was so meaningful. He gave you his badge, too. And, I, you know, I said to him, I'm not worthy. Uh, I wanted to say to him, you don't have to do this. But he did it. Um, it says something uh, uh, about the power of love, the power of nonviolence, that it happened to move us toward reconciliation. And I keep wanting, I want to push you a little bit because the word love, as you said, you know, it's romantic. Love, as you are talking about it, as you have aspired to live it, is not a way you feel. It's a way of being. It's right? a way of being, yes. It's a way of action. It's not necessarily passive. It is... It has the capacity, it has the ability to bring peace out of conflict, has the capacity to stir up things mm -hmm. in order to make things right. When we were sitting in, it was love and action. When you were doing the sit-ins, like in, at lunch counters, at, lunch at counter. big department stores that had right. been segregated. and When we went on the Freedom Ride, it was love and action. The march from Selma to Montgomery was love in action. We, we do it not simply because it's the right thing to do, but it's love in action. That we love our country. We love a democratic society. And so we have to move our feet. Mm. That phrase, um, an African proverb, when you pray, move your feet. You've got that in both of your books. I even tweeted it the other day. People love it. It's an, it's an amazing f phrase. It's also interesting how that, that imagery recurs. Um, you talk about Montgomery and speaking with their feet. You know, Heschel, after the march, said he felt like he was praying. His feet were praying. I wonder if you think about... you. Became a congressman, is, is it right, in 1987? Is that right? I took office in 1987, is, is, elected is, in 86. Okay. So is being in politics part of your way of praying with your feet now? I see my involvement uh, in American politics as an extension of my faith, not simply as an extension of my involvement in the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. My... My life, whether the civil rights movement or whether in American politics is an extension of my faith. It's the sense that you believe that somehow and some way with love and this sense of, I got to do it. You know, I talk about the spirit. I talk about the spirit of history. Yes, you do. And, and, and sometimes it's this feeling that you have been tracked down, as Dr. King was there. You've been what? Tracked. You, you have been caught up. You have been led. You have been uh, f not necessarily forced, but something caught up with you mm -hmm. and said, John Lewis, you too can do something. You too can make a contribution. You too can get in the way. But if you're going to do it, do it through and with love, peace, nonviolence, and that element of faith. Um, oh, I wonder if you have the distinction of being the U.S. congressman who spent the m most days in jail in his life. I don't life. know. I, I never thought about it. <laughs> I've not thought about it. <laughs> I can't mm -hmm. believe there could be many of many who've been in jail more than forty times. 
Well, I didn't want to go to jail. I know. <laughs> I, didn't, I, I didn't want to. Well, jail is not a pleasant place. But jail became one of the way out. One of the, to be arrested, to go to jail, when it's unearned suffering. Mm-hmm. It, it sent a message. It, it, it helped make the person who's suffering better. I, I, I feel better. I felt so good the day I was arrested. But again, that internal discipline was at play, right? You, yes. You were, turn, you were turning that unearned suffering into something. Well, we were using it to help move the society, but also not just the larger society, but to help move us as individuals. Mm-hmm. That you can suffer and you can come out better. I felt liberated. I felt free. Right. Something else I want to talk to you about is the idea of patience. It's another word you use a lot. It's a word I almost think 21st century Americans are allergic to. It's not really a virtue of this culture. Not, certainly not something people are trained in in this culture. You know, you've said of your character, of your personality, that you're more of a pilot light than a firecracker. Um, but I, I want to just, I want to ask you about this. I want to engage you on this. seems to me someone might look at your life and thinking and the civil rights movement and say there's always this tension between a commitment to nonviolence and a total resistance to and struggle with injustice. And there are some, you know, so I, wanted, I, wanted, I want us, you to help us inside this virtue of patience as you've learned it and lived it. You know, there are places in your, in your memoir that are just so striking to me. Um, here's a line. You were talking, I think, about literacy training, voting rights, and all the things you, you trained people in, and you said, we perceived that waiting was an elegant way to prove a point. You know, that again and again, in these different situations that the civil rights fighters put themselves into, your civility demonstrated the absurdity of the other side. But there's, so there's a patience there, but there's also a total impatience. And, and at the March on Washington, your speech that you were going to give was actually edited and there was lots of hand-wringing. And here's what you had planned to say. We will march through the South, through the heart of Dixie, the way Sherman did. We, will, we shall pursue our own scorched earth policy and burn Jim Crow to the ground nonviolently. <laughs> we shall fragment the South into a thousand pieces and put them back together in the image of democracy. So how, help us understand how, how that is not a contradiction to the virtue of patience. Also in, in the speech uh, near the beginning, I said, you tell us to wait. You're right. You're right. You got it right. I said, you tell us to wait. You tell us to be patient. We cannot be patient. We want our freedom, and we want it now. So when you look at that speech of August 28, 1963, you see in a speech by a young guy, 23 years old, I learn, I become better, I'm wiser. You can say all of that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I would tell my members of my own family and members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and members within the movement, within SNCC and uh, SCLC and others, I've always said, pace yourself. Right. Pace yourself. I would tell my wife, i say, every fight is not your fight. Pace yourself. And I would say to the young people and others sometimes, don't get in a hurry. A struggle is not a struggle that lasts for one day, one week, one month, or one year, or one lifetime. Mm-hmm. It is an ongoing struggle. And I think many, I was trying to say to many of the young people, 
that would come south to work. I said, it's going to take more than one summer or one semester. You got to sit in for the long haul. So I always had this sense, this idea that you have to pace yourself. So but patience, at the same, right, yeah. And in the speech of, of, of the March of Washington, I had a lot of rhetoric. Uh, rhetoric. And, uh, and in the end, I knew within my own soul that it was going to be a long haul. And I believe that. Mm-hmm. But you, you don't change the world or the society in a few days. So, it's, it's and it's better. It's, it, 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 it's better to be a uh, it's better to be a pilot light than to be a firecracker. <laughs> right. Because if you're a pilot light, you're gonna be around. Mm-hmm. A firecracker come along and you mm-hmm. just go off. You hear it one moment and you go in the next moment. But do you hear me? Although it's a creative uh, I, tension, you're, it's a line you're walking. Yes. And it sounds like when I read the history of the movement. You and others walked back and forth across that line all the time, but it was that it was that keeping, as you say, the pacing, the, the somehow always being able to pull back and see the long haul. I suppose it's that it's that stance, it's that but, attitude. But we wanted we wanted to end discrimination. Yes. Now we wanted people to be able to register and vote now, and we had a slogan called "Freedom Now," but to have that sort of revolutionary effect that was going to take much longer when you're able to change the minds and hearts and souls of people. How do those experiences, those values that you learned flow into your life in politics in our time? Well, I I think today uh, I'm a much better person, a much better human being. Uh, Sometimes when I'm sitting on the floor of the house or in a committee meeting, um, I feel like sometimes saying, you know, I passed this way once before. And then I think, you know, I would say, you know, if I was back in Nashville or in Georgia on a protest or maybe uh, on the Freedom Ride, what would we do? What would Martin Luther King Jr. say? Uh, what would Gandhi do? So you cannot give up on certain basic principles, certain basic teachings. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anybody would accuse the Congress right now of being a beloved community. Well, I think we are some distance away <laughs> from becoming a beloved community. But I will not give up on Congress. Mm-hmm. And it's my hope that when members of Congress come on uh, trips and journey and a pilgrimage, that they will learn something, that they will grow and become better members and better human beings. You know, you've talked about um, how you, s- small things, but I, I, I see this as a direct line from those disciplines of the years in the movement. You, you greet your political opposites with the words, hello, brother. Um, And you also wrote that you sometimes ask your colleagues in Congress, why do we have to be so mean? I don't know if you meant that you literally asked them that or if that question goes through your mind. I think that question goes through the rest of our minds as we watch some of what happens in Washington these days. And I just wonder, you know, what answer comes back to you and and how do you you diagnose that meanness? Well, I, I think about it. And I think it's the result of our politics, the result of people not just being courteous and being a little more human, but we we, want to get reelected and we have instant news. During the height of the movement, we only had the big networks. We didn't have all of the cable and instant news. And so people troubled if I don't come across like I'm really standing up and fighting for a certain point of view that I'm going to get in trouble back home. My basic 
idea and feeling that, that we must lead. We must not be afraid. We must have courage to lead and help point the electorate to a much higher level. And as I said before, I think, and in, in, in sometimes we, we just get so involved in thinking about the next election and not thinking about how can we create a sense of community, mm-hmm. a sense of one family. But are, the, one are there ways that you work on that and that you see other people working on that that, that doesn't hit the news cycle? Well, we, well, through faith in politics, we have had a, one of the most foremost authority on the teaching and training in the area of nonviolent philosophy. A man by the name of Jim Lawson, who, who taught us. We've had him, had this man to come. Jim Lawson, who taught you originally nonviolence. You're right, who taught us. And Faith and Politics Institute, I should say, because everyone won't know this, is also what's helped create this, in, this pilgrimage. Well, Faith and Politics is responsible mm-hmm. for creating and bringing us all together, creating this journey, this mission, this pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. To, to Alabama, to these sacred, historic places where people change. And what is so amazing to me, I see it every day. And it's not just what happened, uh, say, in, in Montgomery or Birmingham at the University of Alabama, but not with faith in politics, but a man who, who beat me during the Freedom Rise in 1961 and left me bloody, and left my seatmate bloody, had the capacity and ability because we didn't display in a sense of hate, and that his son encouraged him to seek us out, came and apologized. And that was at Elwin Wilson? Yeah, Mr. Wilson. And it was after the election of President Obama, It was Obama, after sorry. the election and a month after the inauguration mm-hmm. in 2009. Mm-hmm. And that is powerful. Mm-hmm. And he came and asked for your forgiveness? He said he wanted to apologize for what he did. Mm-hmm. And he, he said, will you forgive me? And I said, I forgive you. I thank him. He started crying. His son who came with him started crying. I started crying. He hugged me. I hugged him back. He called me brother. I called him brother. And since then, I've seen him four other times. Mm. I'm, you know, some of the radical aspects of this nonviolent tradition that you were steeped in, that you now bring to your life as a congressman, um, this idea of here, here's something I, I read in your book that after the firebombing of the Birmingham church in which four little girls were killed, where I was privileged to be with you this weekend, uh, Reverend King said, at times life is hard, as hard as crucible steel. In spite of the darkness of this hour, we must not lose faith in our white brothers. You know, that very demanding notion, not just of having faith in yourself or faith in your movement, but faith in your enemies. That's powerful, hard. I mean, do you, how, how could that translate into political life in our time? Do you think about that? You have to believe. And you can never, ever give up on any possibility. You, mm. It's part of it, as I said from the beginning, it's already done. You just have to find a way to make it real. Mm. I remember um, when you write about being a student and being exposed for the, to the world of philosophy and theology and reading about the notion of the dialectic and thinking about segregation as a thesis and the fight against desegregation as the antithesis and integration as the synthesis, the end. 
I wonder how you see that now, because you know what? What <laughs> does the dialectic start all over? And what? Well, I, I I don't think it necessarily start all over again. Mm-hmm. But I had a wonderful teacher uh, when I was at American Baptist College. His name was John Lewis Powell, and he would start discussing this idea of uh, the, the thesis and uh, the antithesis and the synthesis. And he would run around the board, the blackboard, writing and jumping. And that's what the struggle had been all about, to bring these competing forces together, bring human beings together, mm-hmm. and create a sense of community, to create this sense of family, that out of, out of the good, the good is already there. So you have to, right. it's the good is there. The love is there. How do you make it real? How do you paint the picture? It's like an audience using a canvas. How, how do you get people to move from maybe A to B and you get C? of one to two and get three, that you're on a path. And you have to be consistent. And you have to be persistent. And patient. And patient. Right. And, and it's all about being faithful, being honest, being open. So, Earlier today on, on this pilgrimage, we were at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church where Reverend King was pastor. And it started out, there was this invocation, this kind of call response, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. I, that theology, that faith is also in your assertion that this is all, this is, the, the good is there and you have to make it real. You, you live as if. Um, but I think something that I, I, I almost, I think I felt it as much as I understood it intellectually is, you know, that's not, God is good is not an insurance policy. It's not a, it's, it's not an analysis. It's a compass. But if you believe, if you believe that somehow and some way God is good, that sometimes some people may think God is on vacation, mm-hmm. that, uh, that God is not any longer involved in the affairs of man, uh, that he's withdrawn. But if you accept this idea that somehow in some way the supreme being, this God, call it this spirit, this force, is still involved in the universe, Sometimes some of us may question and say, is he there? And people must have said to you, how could you have experienced the things you've experienced? How could you know what you know and still believe that? It's, you, it's, you, you have to have a, a, a sense that we all need something, I guess, in some way or another to hold on to, or that we will just give up. We will lose all sense of hope. It is believed that this, our faith, tend to teaches us that this force, this spirit, call it God, Jehovah, is involved. And that you never give up on this faith, this sense of faith, this sense of hope, on the spirit on this God. We used to sing a song, and they sing it today in churches and places, that uh, he may not, may not be there when we need him, but he's always on time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which is back to that sense of pacing and of Keeping the long haul in mind. You have to take the long, hard look. And you do, um, I also, 
I hear that in your your phrase, the spirit of history, which you do use a lot. Um, it's so clear with every accomplishment of humanity, and certainly with the civil rights movement, that so much change, important change, good change happened, and yet there's still much more work to do. Unforeseen complications appear, setbacks appear. Um, that even all the best things we do remain imperfect and incomplete. How do you how do you think about that and, well, and about I, the where the movement is in terms of your faith? Well, I, I think about it, but you have to believe there may be setbacks, there may be some disappointments, there may be some interruption, but again, you have to take the long hard look. With we, this belief, mm -hmm. it's going to be okay. It's going to work out. If, if it failed to happen during your lifetime, then maybe, not maybe, but it will happen in somebody's lifetime. But you must do all that you can do while you occupy this space. Okay. During your time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How does that feel to you that, you know, this spiritual lineage that you drew on of Gandhi and Jesus and those great philosophers, King is now part of that. You're part of that lineage, and you experience this uh, this spirit of history and this movement that you part of. These things you make happen as inspiration to people all around the world. Um, that must be quite amazing. It's amazing to me uh, when I travel uh, in America or abroad and have an opportunity to to speak to young people, to children, give me great, a great sense of hope, a great sense of optimism. When I uh, see all of these elementary school children, middle school, high school, and you go abroad uh, to Europe or some other place in the world that uh, people know about what happened here, how it happened, and they tell you, uh, we study you, we read about you, we study you in history. Um, and sometimes I feel that I'm not doing enough to try to inspire another generation of people to find a way to get in the way, to make trouble, good trouble, I just make a little noise. Something that you talk, wrote about that you're concerned sometimes when new generations, you know, I think we've, we've created a world of advocacy. We're all advocates now. You said you, you experience people asking you how they, can, how they can defend their rights and help themselves, and you say, I tell them the best way to help themselves is to help each other, to work for each other, to push for the other, to pull for the other. I wonder if, is that a, is that a, maybe that's an example of how, you know, what are some, you know, as we, as we close here, you know, something that you inhabit from what you know and what you've lived that maybe pushes against this culture that, that you would like to inject um, as an antidote, a corrective, uh, stir things up a bit. Well, we, we, we need to look at ourselves as part of a larger society, part of a larger community. It's not just my house, but it's our house. It's our little planet. It's our little spaceship. And as Dr. King would say, that we have to learn to live together as brothers and sisters, or we will perish as fools. So we, in a sense, we have an obligation, a mission, a mandate to do what we can to save, save our community, save our planet, not just for our generation, but for our unborn generation. Anything else you'd like to add? I don't think I have anything else to add. No. I think you embody the things that you that you speak and that we we 
we watch you as much as hear you. You move your feet. <laughs> so, John Lewis, I want to thank you so much for the life you've lived and for this conversation we've been able to have with you this afternoon. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thank, thank you. you.